All right, good evening again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we introduced this uh, second part of our series. We've got this creative name for the series. We're calling it Romans Part 2. And what we mean by that is we're in now the second part of Romans. And there will be a third part this summer. So we're looking forward to that. Um, And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today. And it's on page, I think, 942 in those black Bibles under the chair. Somewhere close to that, 942, if you want to follow along in the black Bibles. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and as we celebrate that holiday, we've got some books for you so that we can think uh, with a biblical Christian worldview about race and race relations in our country. Our country, as, as you all know, has a history of uh, making mistakes, of sinning in the area of race relations. So we've got some books here uh, as we uh, move forward as a repenting people, as God's multi-ethnic people of God, as God's church. We want to think about what does the scripture have to say about race and race relations. We've got three books that are really helpful, I think, uh, and I will kind of try to order them. There's one that's very theological, very strictly biblical, one that is more biographical, historical, and one that's a little bit in between. Um, so it looks like we've already run out of some of these, but we're going to restock them and we'll still have those in the, the hallway over the next, like, six weeks or so. Uh, So the first one that's more strictly theological and exegetical is called One New Man by Jarvis Williams, a theology professor uh, at, I think he's at Southern. I'm not sure exactly where he is. But anyway, theology professor. uh, This is a helpful book if you want to just kind of focus just purely. You can see it's the thinnest of the three on the theology and the the scriptural passages having to do with race, racial relations. One New Man is talking about the idea biblically that God's goal is to create a, a new humanity united in Christ. Um, So this one's more theological, biblical. Then the Piper book is called Bloodlines, and this one's kind of a mix of biography and history and and theology and exegesis. So it's a little bit of both. It talks about his own personal history with racism, living through the civil rights movement, but also he, he teaches biblically what the Bible has to say on the subject. So that one's a mix of both. And then this last one is Let Justice Roll Down by John Perkins. Um, and this one's more biographical, more historical. This was really helpful for me, um, just not realizing how bad it was, right? I was born in the 70s, um, so in my mind, you know, civil rights uh, was successful, and it was all over in my generation. And, you know, not realizing that there were still significant issues today, but also not realizing how bad things were actually in the past. So he grew up in Mississippi, fled Mississippi for more freedom and more economic opportunity to California, Then he became a believer and took a call, then felt God's call for him to minister to others as a pastor and felt this call to go back to Mississippi where things were pretty bad in the 60s and he worked as a pastor in the middle of all the tumult that was going on during the 60s during the civil rights movement. So this is a really helpful book if you want to understand the history of things a little better. Um, So all three of them are great. Recommend those to you. They're in the hallway. You can, if, if you don't have the money, you can take one of them, but if you have money, give us your money and just put it in the box, okay? Um, Suggested donation is what it's called. We don't sell things around here. It's a suggested donation, so help us pay for those books. So today, on the subject, God's grace lining us up pretty well. This is a subject that has a lot to do with race, um, and we're calling it United Humanity. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Now, the Bible doesn't obliterate our understanding of race, but what the Bible does is the Bible says that belonging to the tribe of Jesus is primary. So we still have these secondary identities, right? I came from this kind of family. Uh, We grew up in this neighborhood, and we grew up in 
uh, with this kind of tradition and we grew up with these kinds of preferences and we liked this music and we have this kind of culture that we're interested in, right? So there are, there are things that ethnically, racially, culturally mark us and those things are fine, right? But our primary identity is being in the tribe of Jesus. And this passage today says that there are basically two tribes. There's the tribe we're born into, which is the tribe of Adam. We're all sinners in Adam. And by faith, you can be in the tribe of Jesus. That's the other tribe. And so, again, in other places, the Bible says, yeah, there are other tribes and other ethnicities and other things that we belong to that affect us. But those should all kind of pale in comparison to the unity that we have as human beings. Um, The story goes back to the beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve were given this perfect paradise. God gave them one rule, said don't eat from this tree. And the serpent, the dragon, came and tempted them and said, God's holding out on you, right? Like God doesn't want you to have everything that you can have. And they were tempted to disbelieve God and believe the lie of the serpent and to grasp at this choice that said, we, we can decide what's right and wrong in our world. And we'd rather have the blessings of the creation apart from relationship with the creator. And so what our passage today is going to tell us is that we're all united to Adam and Eve that made that choice. We're all, in a sense, children of Adam and children of Eve. We all make that same kind of choice. We all grasp for our independence and saying, I will be my own God. I'm not going to listen to you, God. I'm not going to trust you, but I'm going to find pleasure in my own independence and doing my own thing. So the passage today is going to lead us down this series of parallels. It gets a little complicated in places. Hopefully we'll make sense of it. Um, As I was going through it this morning, I was like, man, I bit off way more than I can chew, you know. So this might be an extra long sermon. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. So starting in verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Great line, we'll repeat that one. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that... As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me pray and ask God to help us. God, we pray for your help. We ask for your grace. This text says you are full of grace. It abounds. There's so much more grace than there is 
our sin even. And so we ask for your grace to meet us here, to help us to hear your word, to help us to focus with, with all that is said here on, on what you want us to hear. We pray that your spirit would meet us here and, and change us and soften our hearts and, and open our minds to receive from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there is one united humanity is, is a big idea for the sermon, as I've said already. And so Paul is saying that we're united in, in multiple different ways. I'm gonna just kind of march through the text and try to say, okay, here's some different ways that as humanity, we are united. And the first way that he says we're united is we're united by guilt. So he kind of starts off with the bad news, right? We're all united by guilt. We're all united. Another word is death. We, we all alike are dying people. I like to joke when I fill out a birthday card, like, happy birthday, you're dying, right? It's one of the things I like to say when I know people really well, because we're all dying, right? We're, we're all just, we're getting closer to death every day. We live in a world of death. And so Paul connects these dots and says, yeah, we're in a world of sin, guilt, and death. That's the kind of world that we all live in, and we're all united in that. We're all a part of that same world, all human beings, no matter what color our skin is, no matter what neighborhood we grew up in, we're all united in that. And so he says it this way in verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, he's, he's going to go on and say, just as sin came in through one man, grace came in through one man. So he's going to get to that later, right? But he's, he's now kind of stuck on the just as sin part. Sin came in through this one man, death through that sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And this is really interesting logic. You read the commentators and most commentators say there's a real tension here in the text because Paul is focusing on corporate identity. We're all a part of this corporate tribe. We're all a part of Adam. Sin and death and disobedience, we're all one corporate identity. But he's also kind of resting a little bit on individual identity. And we just want to, to name up front, most of us are American, and as Americans, we prefer individualistic ways of, of reckoning our identity. That's our preference. That tends to be how we see truth in the world. We tend to be individualists. Now, I think the Bible teaches both to some degree. I think the Bible teaches there's a sense in which we're marked and identified by the group we belong to, and there's a sense in which we're marked and identified by our own personal individual responsibility, what we've achieved, right? But it's helpful to recognize, as Americans, we're way over on this extreme of individualism. That's just who we are. That's what we value as a people. And I would say, to some degree, that's the great strength of our culture, but you can also see how that causes weaknesses in our culture, too. There's a, a selfishness, right, and a greed that comes in there when you just focus on the individual. So the Bible says there are really, there's truths to both of those things, and I'm not really not going to solve all that for you tonight. I'm just going to say that tension is out there, and the Bible talks about both sides of it. The Bible says we're, we're individuals. The Bible also says we're members of families and groups and tribes and nations. And what it's saying is it's tracing our sin back to our membership in this tribe, we're all, you know, maybe we came from different little T tribes, different families, different ethnes, ethnicities, different groups, but we all can trace our roots back to Adam, this one mega tribe of humanity that we all belong to. We're all unified, and that's a tribe of death. It's a tribe of rebellion. It's a tribe of sin. So as we think about this concept of, do I want to think of myself individualistically, or do I want to think of myself corporately, I think it's helpful to work out the concept they're talking about here, and it's sometimes labeled federal headship. Have you ever heard that term, federal headship? 
Another way of saying it is federal representative. That sounds more familiar, right? A federal representative. Federal headship sounds a little ancient and tribal, and that's, you know, that's like the, the Near Eastern way of thinking about it. But federal representative, that sounds a little more like what we have in our government, right? It's someone who represents you federally. The word federal is from the old Latin, it's covenant, right? So you have this covenant representative. And so for us, like our president, in a sense, is our federal representative. When we go to war, our president is representing us and making decisions about war for the sake of us. So um, as Americans, again, we don't necessarily like to pay the price or get into trouble based on what our representative did for us, right? And if we are going to do that, we really want to get to pick who that representative is, right? And, and so we have this concept of with voting and democracy that, okay, if we do have to have someone stand in for us and represent us as our champion, at least let us pick him, right? Other parts of the world, people aren't that worried about it because they're just used to not being able to pick their leaders, right? And, you know, lately it's maybe been debatable in our culture as well, but uh, there's at least this desire we have of thinking we should get to pick our leaders, And so we can feel like this is very unfair that Adam and Eve were picked for us to be our representatives, to be our federal heads, to be our federal representatives. Do y'all see that? Do you see how there's this part of us that because of our culture, because of our tribal affiliations, that doesn't seem right. Seems unfair that we would be guilty because of what Adam and Eve have done. And I was reading through a commentary by Tim Keller, and I thought it was really helpful the way he described it. So... We like to pick our leaders, and, and we might think, well, if I had gotten to pick my leader, they might have done a, done a better choice, right? Or maybe you've gone so far as, as, as this. I've actually thought this, I know when I was younger, I thought, well, I wouldn't have sinned. If it was me in a perfect garden, I wouldn't have sinned. Why am, why am I having to live now in this world of sin and death? Because Adam and Eve sinned. Well, Keller says it this way. He says, think about it this way. You know, when you go to vote for someone, you're making the best choice you can. Who knows? It's like they're all liars. I don't know what to believe. But what if someone who is supremely good, what if someone who is all-powerful picked your leader for you? What if the greatest power in the universe and the most loving and generous power in the universe picked just the perfect representative who would represent you perfectly in the garden? Keller's argument is, is that's what God did. God picked perfectly. When God picked Adam and Eve, they were the perfect representatives for us. And so the logic is that we can say all we want, that yeah, I wouldn't have sinned if I were there. But every day we sin, right? Every day we replay what Adam and Eve did. Every day we say, I want to be God. I don't trust him. I know what I'm doing. He doesn't know what he's doing. So every day we replay that. And so again, I think you can see both sides of the tension here. Paul says we're all in Adam, and because of Adam's sin, we're sinners too. So there's a sense that because of what he did, we're a part of what he did. We're a part of the brokenness and the sin in the world. But he also says, because all sinned. So death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so again, Adam could be blamed, but we can also blame ourselves. So in one sense, yes, he's affirming corporate identity. We're sinners because of Adam, and he's also affirming individualistic identity. We're all sinners because of us. Another way I like to say it often is that Christians, part of being a Christian is saying, I'm a sinner. But that's just Christianity 101. Christianity is not like, we're the good people, they're the bad people, 
I've done what's right, they've done what's wrong, they're what's wrong with the world. No, Christianity is saying, I'm what is wrong with the world. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, is to own up as an individual your part that you've played in the corporate brokenness of the world. So again, I'm, I'm not really solving the corporate versus individual thing. I'm just saying we're kind of caught both sides with it. Verse 13 says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not counted where there is no law. Now this is a little confusing phrase because it might sound like sin isn't even a sin before the law was given. And Paul's making actually just the opposite statement here. And we know this because of context. Sometimes when you read a confusing verse, it's really helpful to look at context, right? Like read the rest of the book and read the verses before and after. So if you just read verse 13, you would think he's saying sin doesn't count without the law. No, what he's saying is um, it's not counted in the same way. It's not as obvious. It's not as clear. It's not marked in the same way. But sin is still sin. And we know that because in Romans 1, we also know because the rest of this passage, but in Romans 1, he says, those of us that maybe grew up pagan without the law, like non-Jews, he was talking about in Romans 1, are still accountable for our sin. We see God in creation. We know he's there, and we still shake our fist at him and say we want to do our own thing. We deny that he's real. And so Paul's already made it clear in Romans that there's two kinds of sin. There's kind of the obvious, clear sinning of people who have the law saying, no, I don't want the law. I hate God's law. And then there's the people that don't have the law that say, yeah, I don't want this God who I intuitively know is there. The law is written in my heart, but I still reject him. And so Paul is just making a point. Verse 14 clarifies that yet, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who's the type of the one to come. So he's like, from Adam to Moses, Moses is when the law came for the Jews in their mind. So there was still a lot of sin. He was like, there was sin, there was death there, even though the law hadn't come yet to really nail it down and clarify it. And he's saying that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Typology is a word we use in scripture of how one character in the Bible is a type or a pattern of another character. And so Paul's saying here that Adam is like Jesus. He's a pattern. He's a pattern in that he's a tribal chief. He's a federal representative. He's a federal head. He's the head, the champion of the tribe of sinners. And Jesus is the champion, the head of the tribe of the saved. So that's what Paul's trying to clarify here. So what difference does that make in our life if we all indeed are united by guilt. Whether we're united because of our corporate identity in Adam's fall or because we're united because we play it out in our own life, we're guilty sinners ourselves. Either way, we're all guilty. We're all sinners. What does that mean and how we relate to each other? Well, I think that levels the playing field because we often uh, want to defend ourselves. We often want to say that, that we've done what's right. We want to defend our habits, our preferences, our culture, how we see things. And so, I have a picture here of Adam and Eve. I actually found a real photograph of Adam and Eve under a tree there. I don't know if you can see it. It's real small. Um, but this is just to remind you again that, you know what, we're all, we're all our own little Adams, Adams and Eves. We all replay that guilt every day in our own life. And so then when we meet other people, we should have this attitude of, yeah, man, I may not like what you did, but, but I'm a sinner too. I may not understand how you live or how you do things, but I can't be judgmental towards you because I'm also broken. And so it gives us a pause, I think. I think it gives us, again, a level playing field. It gives us a foundation to build relationships on where we say, I'm not really any better than you. 
We can have debates about uh, how we do things. We can talk about those things, but it's better if we start, instead of with defending ourselves and saying how right we are, it's better if we start by saying, just to be clear, I think I'm guilty too. Just to be clear, I think I'm a sinner too. Okay, now we can, now we can have a conversation and debate about why you like this and why I like that, right? It, it's good to just start there and, and level the playing field. The term for this biblically is repent. So if you start with sin, that means you're repenting. Repent literally means to turn. It means you're turning from trusting in your sin and you're turning to trust in Jesus. We'll talk about that trust in Jesus more in the next section, but um, Adam and Eve were trusting in themselves. Adam and Eve were saying, we're going to make our own choice and not trust God. We're going to trust ourselves. And that's what we do every day. And one of the dangers for us racially, tribally, um, even in our just different traditions as people, our different philosophical schools, right? Uh, Whatever your profession is, right? There's a tendency in your profession to, to think a certain way. There's a sense in which we trust in that tradition. We trust in that tribal marker. We trust in that way of seeing the world more than we trust in God himself. So again, the Bible says, that's great if you have traditions, that's great if you have preferences, that's great if you have your own culture. Just make that secondary to the culture that God calls us to, to who he is. Because that's why I said at the beginning, the Bible doesn't obliterate racial distinctions, it just says that our primary sense of race should be, there's two races. There's the race of sin and there's the race of people that are saved by God's grace. And that's really, those are the primary races we should see. So I think this leads to healthier conversations with people. This leads to a church that can be a church comprised of people from different traditions and different ethnicities. One of the things we praise God for is that God's doing that in our church. We're a church and we come from different backgrounds, come from different places, look like different things, speak different languages, but we're united by guilt and united by Christ as the answer to that guilt. So that leads us to the next section. We're united by our opportunity for life in Christ. We're united by our opportunity. Um, throughout the, the Jewish Old Testament literature, there's this kind of wisdom concept of there's two paths that you can go down, right? There's the path of the righteous and there's the path of the wicked. There's always this choice to be a fool or to be righteous. And Paul lays that out with these two tribal chiefs here in verses 15 through 17. Look at 15 through 17. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. So backing up, verse 14, he had just said, Adam is a type, he's a pattern of the one to come, right? So Adam and Jesus are just alike in a way. They're two tribal chiefs. Now he's saying, but hold on, they're not exactly alike, right? An important distinction is The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Um, This word abounding and the word much more is really important and we'll get back to that concept in the next section, right? He's going to talk about this a lot. There's sin, but then there's this grace and much more there's grace. Much more there's this abounding of what Christ has done for us. We'll get to that aspect of it in a little bit. But the big distinction I want you to see is coming up in verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought what? Condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought what? Justification. Important distinction here. It's almost so simple we could miss it, right? 
Uh, imagine you're picking a, a kickball team, right? You're picking players, and you could pick one player, and he will bring to your team death and condemnation. Or you could pick another player, and he would bring life and justification. Which player should you pick? You've got a great opportunity here, right? And that is really that simple. Paul's just laying it out, and he's like, yeah, I mean, you could, I guess you could stay on Adam's team if you want, where death reigns, and it's guilt and condemnation, or there's Jesus who brings life, who brings justification. Why would you not pick Jesus? Why would you not do that? So he's laying out this opportunity. You have this incredible opportunity to choose life. The Bible repeatedly lays out this choice as, as an easy, almost ridiculous to pass up choice. Why, why would you not do this? He, he goes on. And Paul repeats himself a lot in this section, but he says, verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more, there's that much more again, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So again, the contrast is over here, you've got condemnation. Over here, you've got justification. Literally, justification could be translated as righteousnessification. Okay, which would be clunky, so we're not going to say that, right? But it's that God makes you righteous, right? So here's, here's the deal. We, we talked about in the previous point. We're all united. All human beings are not righteous. But God is offering you this opportunity to be righteous. He's giving it to you as a gift by your connection, your union with your new federal chief, your new federal representative, Jesus Christ, your new champion who will stand in for you and give you his righteousness. The way it's described in other places in Scripture, and will be more in Romans 6 next, next couple of weeks, is that Jesus Christ took all of your sins upon himself on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin, and he gives you his righteousness as your representative. One of the phrases that appears a lot throughout the New Testament is that we are in Christ. And so it's like we are clothed in his righteousness. We are seen by the Father as Jesus. When God looks at us by faith in Christ, he sees Jesus. He delights in us as his very own son. We're, we're a part of Jesus. That's that corporate identity concept. As individuals, by faith in Jesus, we're a part of the corporate identity of be, belonging to Jesus, being in him, so that the Father delights in us. So that's justification. He sees us as righteous. So we're no, no longer under condemnation for our sin. It's a just condemnation we deserve but we're given freely the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. We're given justification, righteousness. So we're no longer enduring the reign of death, but we're now seeing the reign of life. Now, the prosperity gospel mixes this up, and the prosperity gospel teachers, these are the health and wealth teachers that say, if you give enough money, God wants you to enjoy life, then you'll have all your riches now, right? You'll have all healing now. You'll have all blessing now. You'll have everything you want now. And I, I would say, well, no, the Scriptures promises it to us in an eternal perspective. So we have inherited everything that Christ has. But the heroes of the faith, Jesus, namely, Paul, namely, they gave up everything as they were faithful to God and the calling that God had for them. And so we trust that we have an internal inheritance, that, that everything's going to be made right in the end. And there are varying degrees to which we enjoy those blessings now. Um, we pray and pursue blessings now. There's nothing wrong with it, right? We don't want to slide off to the other extreme of the poverty gospel where we say, God will love me more if I'm as miserable as possible, right? That's the other extreme. 
We're saying, no, God, God wants us to live a good life, but, but he also asks us to lose our life in order to find it. And that we'll ultimately be self-actualized as we entrust ourselves to God. So we're no longer following Father Adam, who trusted himself, but we're following Jesus, who trusted the Father. So this is the opportunity before us. These are the two choices, the two paths to use the wisdom literature concept, right? Choose foolishness or choose righteousness. Choose death or choose life. It's laid out before us, and it's a free gift that, that Jesus has accomplished for you. Jesus offers this life for you. One of the things that um, often we do when we work in third world countries, right, is we try to help them make sure they have clean drinking water. Some of you have probably been a part of projects like that, maybe in poor areas, even in the States. Drinking water is, is an important thing. You can't live without clean water, right? So I have a picture here of someone drinking um, from a fresh, new uh, water spigot that's been installed. This, this brings life. Jesus, throughout the scripture, says that he is that kind of ultimate spiritual drinking water that we need for life. In John 7, he says, all those who are thirsty, come, come. Rivers of living waters will spring up from within you. He invites us to come to him. Isaiah 55 says it like this. It says, come to the waters, all you who are thirsty, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He says, why spend your labor on what is not bread and what doesn't satisfy, right? Why spend all your money basically on poison, when I'm, I'm offering you the good stuff for free. That's what God tells us in Isaiah 55. He says, come to me. We have, we have this opportunity to come to him. So my question is, are you recognizing the opportunity that God just lays out before us life and death? We've already chosen death, and now he lays out an opportunity for us to choose life in Christ. I think this works its way out in our our habitual sin, what I've found in, in talking to people about sins that they continue to struggle with is, is they don't actually recognize that in that sin, death is reigning in their life, right? So if you're struggling with the sin in a certain area, chances are you don't actually see it as death. You don't actually see it as destructive. It just, it just feels good. You're just like, well, some random reason God doesn't want me to do this. You know, he's got control issues, but it's really kind of fun, but you're kind of you kind of feel some guilt because, you know, you've heard you're not supposed to do it and, and you're mixed up about it. The Bible makes very clear, and, and I would say you're going to learn by experience, if you keep at it, that it brings death. It's destructive. It's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt other people. It's just not always obvious in the beginning. It's not always obvious up front. I don't know if you remember these moments as a kid. There, there are these early transformational moments that kind of shake us morally where we realize sometimes that we can get away with things and not get caught. Do you remember those moments where you like did something and you're like, oh, nothing happened. I didn't get punished for that, right? And that's kind of a scary moment because there are those little steps where we start to think sin's not that bad. You know, people said it was bad, but now I've enjoyed it and it's okay. I think sin can always have a, have a temporary pleasure to it. But I just want to encourage you as someone who spends a lot of time walking through this with people in the end, it always leads to death. It's always destructive. It always will eat away at you. It, it destroys your soul. So, so I would say, don't keep going down, down that path and, and ask for help. Ask for help. Don't be ashamed to say, I, I need help. help. Help me to work through this. Help me to come out of the, the shadows, out of the darkness with this. Recognize that Jesus offers you life. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me that you may live. 
The last thing that I want us to look at is that we're united by superabounding grace. So this is a long compound phrase that um, doesn't appear exactly in our English translation, but, but this is a literal way of saying what's there, okay? Superabounding grace. Let's look at it in verse 18 through 21. This speaks to that concept we saw in the previous section of much more, the much moreness of what Jesus has to offer to us. Okay, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So again, going back to opportunity language, death is given to all men. We all the same are given death. And he says death, uh, righteousness, justification, and life for all men. At the end of verse 18, does that mean every single man is now converted to life and justification and righteousness in Christ? No, he's talking about all kinds of men. The scripture often does this, where it talks about all kinds of people can be saved. Tall people, short people, fat people, skinny people, right? Brown people, tan people, all colors, all shapes, all sizes, all kinds of men can be saved, can have righteousness. Every tribe, every tongue, every representative, every kind of person in the world. And that's the kind of logic that Paul is following here. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, um, we got to stop here because this is another confusing verse. The law came in to increase the trespass. So does that mean the law is bad? Now, Paul is clear, and we're going to get to more of this in Romans, and he talks about it in Galatians as well. There's a sense in which the law increases sin. Two senses. One sense is it clarifies it, right? The law says, that's sin. So in that sense, it increases the trespass. There's another sense where it plays off our own sinfulness, And so we are to blame. The law is not to blame, but we are to blame because God says, do this. And we say, well, I hate hate God and I hate his law, so I'm not going to do it. So in a sense, that increases sin in our life because of our own rebellion. Because we're told to do something, and every time we're told to do something, that makes us want to do it less, right? And so when the law is added, when God gives clear commands, that increases sin in those two different ways. In one way, because of our own rebelliousness, and in another way, because it clarifies the sin that, that we're already involved in. So Paul is saying that's, that's what the law does. And he says, but where sin increased, sin was growing, grace superabounded is literally what it says there. Grace super, it says here, grace abounded, but in the Greek it would be literally superabounded. It's the, the um, prefix hyper, huper, which could be translated hyper or super, right? So it super abounds, it super increases. So sin increases, but grace super increases. Sin abounds, but grace super abounds. That's the contrast here in the Greek. Grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I said this again the last couple of times we've been in Romans 5, Romans 5 is a part of a package that, that Paul is kind of crafting together in these sections. And 5, 6, 7, and 8 all flow together. And where we're moving, this kind of climax that Paul is getting to in chapter 8 is he's going to talk about how we are super conquerors, right? More than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And so we're headed to this, again, other way of looking at super abounding grace. The law is, is measured, right? Right? The law is like a time clock that 
that catches everything we do, you know, sin, sin, sin. It's like a bean counter. You've done wrong. You've done wrong there. You've done wrong there. And it's very measured. Grace is different. Grace is superabounding. Grace is overflowing. Grace can't be stopped. There's no sin that's so strong that grace can't overcome it. So we need to be clear again about this difference. There's a sameness, right? Adam's kind of like Jesus. You know, one represents us in sin and one represents us in life and salvation. And there are similarities. But Paul wants to make sure we understand the differences. So that sin grows, but grace grows faster. Sin grows, but grace grows bigger. Sin abounds, but grace superabounds. And it's important that we see that distinction. I think what that does to us is it, it makes us risk takers, right? I think that makes us the kinds of people they want to try crazy things for the Lord. A, a passage that's convicted me over the years is the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And it's a negative example, but I think you can kind of take this negative example and then look at all the positive examples in Scripture. And you, you build this picture of if, if God really loves us, if God's really saved us, then that would lead us to, to live a life of reckless abandon. The way the story unfolds in Matthew 25 is it says there's these three guys that are given talents, and talents in the first century were literally like bars of silver, right? We use it now to think about the particular things we're good at. But talents, they're, they're given stuff to invest. They're given money, basically. So one guy takes the money that his master gave him, and he invests it, and he makes more money for his master. And his master's like, well done, now I'm going to give you more responsibility. Second guy, same thing. He invests, he makes money with it, he brings back, does well for the master. Master says, well done, I'm going to give you more responsibility. There's this third guy, though, who says to the master, master, I know that you're unfair. I know that you can't be trusted. I know that you take what doesn't belong to you. So what I decided to do was bury the talent in the backyard and not do anything with it. So here it is. And the master judges him harshly because the master says, well, you say I'm harsh, so I'm going to judge you harshly. And that was convicting to me because I realized I, I often see God that way. I, I'm often scared to take risks because I think God's going to smack me if I do the wrong thing, right? I'm not trusting in his superabounding grace. If you trust in his graciousness, if you trust that he's good and that he loves you, you're going to take risks. You're going to try things. You're going to step out there. And so I know some of you that are like risk-averse personalities. I'm freaking you out right now. Pray about it, okay? Pray about it. Read the scriptures, meditate. We can talk later about it. But, but I think God here is saying, hey, sin is powerful and sin will ruin your life and sin brings death into the world, but grace is so much bigger and richer and more powerful. So I think in a sense, he's kind of he's deputizing us. I grabbed a picture here of a little kid wearing a cape. I used to love wearing capes when I was a kid. Frankly, I would still wear a cape if it, if it was socially acceptable for adults to wear capes. Um, but I think in a sense, it's this, this picture I have of, of God saying, go, f- fly, right? Like, here's your cape. You've lived under this, this reign of terror, of sin and death. I'm, I'm giving you grace. I'm giving you life. Choose life and go and run with it. It's not choose life so you can sit on the corner and go, all right, I'm saved. It's so you can go live. It's so you can spend yourself for others. It's so you can invest the talents that God has given you and spend them for God's glory. And so my prayer is that we would continue to be those kinds of people, that we would spend ourselves knowing that God's got our back and things are going to be fine and we have the inheritance of the king of the universe that we're looking forward to. So we're not worried about clinging to ourselves or protecting ourselves, but we can 
we can go out and live life with reckless abandon. What does this translate to in our, our everyday life? As we talked before about habitual sins that we might be caught in, I think one area of risk-taking that superabounding grace encourages us towards is dealing with sin in our life, right? Because every culture has pet sins that are okay, and we can talk about them, and then every culture has maybe unforgivable or not talk aboutable sins, right? We, we have sins that we want to keep secret. We want to guard them. We can't confess those. We can't talk about those. We can't bring those out in the light. And I think if God's grace is really so superabounding, if God's grace is really strong enough to forgive any sin, that that would free us to, to deal with all of it. There might be sins in your life that you're like, man, I can't tell anybody about that. I would say you need to bring that into the light. Two key passages, one is 1 John 1, and another is James 5. They both say that we should be the kinds of people that, that talk about our sin. In 1 John 1, John says there that you can be one of two kinds of people. You can either lie and say that you don't have sin, or you can confess your sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So that's a really us, us and God relationship with sin. If grace is superabounding, you can confess your sin. The other thing is in James 5 where it says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. If grace is superabounding, who gives a flip what your buddy thinks, right? Just tell him. Get it out there and ask him to pray for you. Now, I wouldn't confess your sins one to another in the sense of like, you know, post it on Facebook or, you know, send out a, put a billboard up about your sin. You don't have to tell everybody, right? But, but find someone that you can talk to that can pray for you, that can walk through it with you. Especially find someone that understands grace and forgiveness. Someone who will knock you upside the head and say, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. But someone who also will not judge you and say, but yeah, I'm a sinner too. And God's grace is enough for us and, and we can move forward together. We, we can work on this. So confess those things. I, I also think that his superabounding grace causes us to take risks in the area of ra- racial reconciliation. The stuff that we were talking about earlier with Martin Luther King Day coming up tomorrow. I think God's superabounding grace encourages us to move towards messy relationships. It encourages us to talk to people that don't look like us, talk to people that maybe don't think like us, uh, that don't live like us, to have relationships with people from different faith traditions, relationships with people from different ethnic traditions, relationships with people um, from different backgrounds of all types. So I'd encourage you to pursue those kinds of relationships. As a leadership team, we continue to pray that that we would be a body, a community, that displays God's multi-ethnic plan for the world. The way Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2 is he says, um, God's multicolored wisdom is displayed in the church. It's usually translated multifaceted, but it's literally multicolored, right? Like God has this plan of building a people that aren't just one tribe. He doesn't want us to be from just one people group. He wants his people to be a multi-ethnic tribe from all over every tongue and tribe and language of the world. So part of how we get there is by being risk takers, by saying, man, God's superabounding grace has been poured out on me, so I'm going to take risks in relationship, and I'm going to reach out to people, and I'm going to try to understand people. I'm going to build relationships with other people. Um, We've prayed about that as a leadership team, that we would grow and look more like the city. Um, I had one person ask me one time, they said, when you, when you talk about race, you seem to be fixated on 
um, black-white relationships? And why is that? Do you not care about other ethnicities? And I said, no, really, I'm, the reason I focus on that sometimes, if you've heard me talk about it in the past, is because uh, in our community, there's just an l- incredibly large number of African Americans in our community. So that's, that's an area where we look out of the congregation and say, hey, we're multi-ethnic, that's great, but we don't quite look like the city, right? We're not as multi-ethnic as Colleen is. So just to kind of clarify, we look at the city and say, as we make friends with each other and share the gospel with each other, it makes sense that we would look more and more like the city. So that's why often that comes up. I think also, as you read these books, you'll recognize we have a particularly great deal of sin to confess as a nation in that area too. So that's part of why that comes up as well. But our prayer is that we would recognize God's superabounding grace to us, no matter who we are, no matter what we look like, no matter where we come from, And that would lead us to befriend and love people that don't look like us, to befriend and love people that don't think like us, and to build a network that's united by that superabounding grace. So as we wrap up, um, I want you to to make it personal, because there's a danger of just thinking in these grand terms that Paul's laid out of, there's this one tribal head, Adam, there's this one tribal head, Jesus, but, but you need to make it clear. You can go back to last week's passage where it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I want, you to, I want you to make that personal. I want you to think that through in your own head. Not because of how clean or beautiful or because you're the right type of person, but while we, you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ loved you enough to give himself for you. Make sure that you make that personal, that you... Realize Christ's love for you as an individual, and that's what makes you corporately a part of his tribe and his people. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond and and worship together. God, thank you that you love us, and you've shown grace to us in Jesus, and that unites us. We know we're all united by our sin and our guilt, um, and I pray that we would be united by your grace, that by trusting in Jesus, we would be grafted in to the family of God that we would belong to you. And I pray, Lord, as uh, we pursue this unity in faith, that we would more and more be a, a multicolored display of your wisdom in the church here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.